Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. There is a work I recently discovered called The Hovomal, which is an old Norse poem of wisdom attributed to the god Odin himself and found in what is known as the Poetic Edda, the most important source for our knowledge of Norse gods and heroes. The manuscript of this source is known as the Codex Regius. This poem, written in Old Norse, is the topic of this conversation. My guest on this episode is Dr. Jackson W. Crawford. Crawford is instructor of Nordic Studies and coordinator of the Nordic program at the University of Colorado Boulder. You can find him online at jacksonwcrawford.com where you can find information on his stellar YouTube channel on Norse mythology and Old Norse translations. You can also find Crawford on Twitter at the handle at Norse by SW, so it's Norse by Southwest. Crawford is the author and translator of the Wanderers Hovamal and the Poetic Edda, Stories of the Norse Gods and Heroes. Both books are available from Hackett Publishing. He is also the author of a work called The Cowboy Hovamal, where he writes in the voice of his grandfather, giving advice that is reminiscent of that found within the Hovamal. There are a few special features of this episode I would like to highlight. First, Crawford recites a segment of the Hovamal in Old Norse and then reads his translated English version. If you have the book, you can read along or you can just sit back and listen to the stunning beauty of the Old Norse words. Second, Crawford recites a piece of his cowboy Hovamal, which you can read on his website at jacksonwcrawford.com. In this conversation, Crawford told me the Cowboy Hovamal was his favorite piece of work he's ever done, and for good reason. It's deeply personal, and I'm glad we included this segment in the conversation. So, if you are looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas, or at Facebook.com slash Classical Ideas Podcast. Give me a follow. I would love to have you. So, without further delay, please enjoy this conversation on The Wanderer's Hovamal by Dr. Jackson W. Crawford. Dr. Jackson Crawford, welcome to Classical Ideas. Well, thank you very much. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? All right. My name is Dr. Jackson Crawford. I teach at the University of Colorado and previously at UCLA and UC Berkeley. My field is Old Norse, the language and literature written in it, which in the case of Old Norse largely means the mythology of the Old Norse gods, such as Odin, Thor, and Loki. Wonderful. Can you tell me a little bit about the origin of your academic interest in Norway and Nordic studies? Because this is a brand new topic for me on the show, and I'm curious how you found your professional path. Yeah, people ask about this quite a bit because I'm not quite what people tend to picture in terms of someone who'd be interested in this. I have no uh, Scandinavian family background. My last name's not Sun. Um, And if you look at me, I'm not, uh, I'm I'm kind of on the opposite end of blonde. Um, So I was a kid fascinated by dinosaurs. And uh, through that, with the evolution of life on Earth and When I got a chance to study a foreign language in middle school, I chose Latin because the dinosaur names were in Latin. And from Latin, I learned that language also evolved, and I became fascinated with that idea. So I went tracking down the earliest form of English I could find, which was Old English, 
And then uh, from that got interested in sort of the sidesteps that evolution had taken. What were the forgotten sisters of English? And uh, one of those is Old Norse, which in the time of, say, the first millennium AD was still mutually intelligible with Old English. Hmm. And uh, I just ended up sticking with that. I did my undergrad in Latin and Greek, my master's in linguistics at the University of Georgia, where I did Indo-European historical linguistics and studied languages from all branches of the Indo-European family tree. And then at the PhD level, just ended up specializing in the language that uh, was most interesting to me. So I got my PhD in Scandinavian philology, uh, focusing on Old Norse philology at uh, University of Wisconsin. Wonderful. Well, you have this intriguing new book from some of my friends over at Hackett Press who recently sent me your your book. And I love Hackett's work. And the book is The Wanderers Havamal. Did I say that correctly? I would say Havamal. Havamal. And then a lot of other people would say Havamal, which is the modern Icelandic pronunciation. But uh, Havamal is the reconstructed Old Norse pronunciation. Excellent. So can you tell the audience what is the translation of the word Havamal? So many Old Norse poems are named something mol. Mol means words, speech. And then hova is, well, you've got uh, classically informed people, so I can use some technical terms here perhaps. Yes. It is the genitive singular of an adjective hor, which conventionally means high, but there is also a reconstructable Old Norse adjective that is uh, homophonous with that, that means one-eyed. So it is, depending on which one of those you favor, the words of the high one or the words of the one-eyed one. But either way, that's a reference to the god Odin, who is the speaker of the poem. Excellent. And I notice on the cover here that there are some um, markings over the A's on the title. Can you talk about like what those mean for the language? Yes, so in Old Norse, uh, as conventionally written today, of course, there was no standardized spelling 800 years ago. We use uh, acute marks to indicate the length of the vowel. So it's not stress. Stress in Old Norse is always on the first syllable. Rather, it just means that the vowel is held um, a, a fraction of a second longer, a little bit like the difference between hat, which has a short vowel, and had, which has a long vowel. But also based on some of the ways that the longer vowels diphthong eyes in later Scandinavian languages, we also uh, understand that some of the long vowels had a different sound than the short vowels. And that's the case with A, where the long A is rounded. Hence why I say hovamol, mm. not Yeah. Um, and we can see. And, and so actually that long A is what becomes the letter written as A with a halo above it in Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish, which is pronounced in that rounded way, ol. Excellent. Yeah, because the, the third A in the title and in the word hovamal it is not, does not have any kind of marking over the top of it. That's really cool. No, it's, it's the second one that isn't marked. So oh, yeah, the second one. Sorry. Yeah. So it's hovamol. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. That's really cool. I like that. Thank you. Um, so the hovamol, hovamol, is found in a manuscript called the Codius Regius. Is that, am I saying that one correctly? Uh, Codex Regius. Yeah, the, king, the Kingly Codex. Awesome. So what is this Kingly Codex? Can you talk a little bit about what this is, where it can be found, like where people can go and see it if they want to see it with their own eyes? Absolutely. So the Codex Regius is the modern Latin name that we give to a manuscript written in Iceland around 1270. This manuscript uh, was somewhere, we don't know where, uh, between the 1200s and somewhere in the mid-1600s when it was brought to Denmark, uh, which at that time administered Iceland. And because of its contents, having some of the uh, oldest and best uh, preserved myths of the Norse gods, it was considered, well, sort of a king among manuscripts and presented to the Danish king at the time. Hence, it's called the Codex Regius in, uh, in Latin, or in Icelandic, it's called Konungsbok, King's Book, meaning basically the same thing. So whoever wrote this manuscript down in about 1270 had at least two earlier manuscripts that he was copying from. Uh, 
we know that it's a copy from earlier manuscripts because there are inconsistent spellings that would only come up if you were copying from about 70 or 80 years earlier when the orthography of Old Norse was broadly different. So it's kind of like someone, and, and you know, this could change very fast in the Middle Ages because there's no mm -hmm. Webster, right? People are basically spelling like it sounds to them. And uh, so we can see where the scribe is trying to kind of modernize the spellings, but often forgetting to. And the errors are systematic enough that we can say, okay, this is copied from something that's from about 1200. But there's two different manuscripts he was copying from because the spellings in Hobomol are quite distinct from the spellings in all the other poems. There's about 30 poems in the Codex Regius. Uh, so Hobomol was apparently preserved on its own in some other context before it was incorporated into this manuscript. And the way I would call or what I often say to my students about the Spanish script is um, it is a mixtape or an iTunes playlist on mm. shuffle. Someone wrote down the 30 or so poems that he knew about the Norse gods and heroes. These are clearly not all of the poems that circulated about these figures. A lot has been lost and, and many stories are referred to that we have no uh, preserved forms of today. But someone decided to write down what he knew, gave it a reasonably intelligible structure. Uh, the manuscript opens with a poem called Voluspaw, which is an account of the beginning and end of the world. Then we get several poems featuring Odin. Then we have one featuring Freud. Then we have a bunch of Thor poems. Then we have elf and dwarf poems. Then we have human hero poems. And the language of many of these poems is much more archaic than the language of the 1200s when they were written down. So we can actually pretty well tell that several of the poems, including a lot of Hobomol, must have originated in around the 900s in oral transmission, because sometimes the poetry actually doesn't even work in the 1200s, but does work if you're using the language of the 900s. Excellent. Um, so do the manuscripts that they were using as source material, do any of those still exist, or is this the the code is the Codex Regius, is that the oldest surviving piece of writing that there is? It is the oldest one that we have with this content. Uh, in fact, it is the only source for most of the poems that are in it. A few are also in other manuscripts or quoted enough in other manuscripts that we, we have independent attestations, but most of them, including Hobomol, uh, the only medieval source is the Codex Regius. Okay, so that's the oldest one that we currently have that we can actually see today. Okay, cool. Um, where is the Codex? Where is it kept? It is in Reykjavik, Iceland, in uh, the, what, what is it called in English? I think it's called just the National Museum. Um, you can go and see it proudly on display alongside many other important manuscripts of uh, myths and sagas. Have you personally gone and visited with it yourself? I have. In fact, I've held it which is a rare distinction, I suppose. <laughs> Wonderful. Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences of viewing it and working with it and what it was like for you as a professional who studies this to actually go and see this in person? Well, it's actually, I think part of what's a little bit funny is that it's smaller than people expect. Ah. It, I think it gets such a big presence in your mind if you if you work on old Norse philology that maybe you're expecting it to be huge but it's about the size of a paperback book it's about the size of the the wanderers Hobomol book uh it is in vellum so calfskin the handwriting is very nice and clear it's in uh, carolingian insular which is a uh, beautiful medieval hand and uh, i don't know what to say beyond that about its physical characteristics that's although fine. I do think it's a beautiful manuscript. I know um, that um, I know that you said in the book that you first read portions of this story when you were in seventh grade. Like, how did you first like? Can, do you remember what, what do you remember about those early days of being exposed to this text first? That was in a seventh grade class that I had called adolescent literature, and uh, the the teacher Ms. Schwarz, uh, basically in this class, she just gave you stuff to read. <laughs> I mean, it was all, it was very individualized. Um, and she decided I needed to read mythology. So she had me read Edith Hamilton's mythology, that classical book. Oh yeah. 
And uh, of course, I read through all the Greek and Roman stuff, and then there's this little tiny appendix at the back about Norse myth, uh, which Edith Hamilton didn't read Old Norse, but she included some quotations from Hogmall. I don't even know what translation it's from, um, but one of the, the real old ones. And I was struck, even at that age, by how similar it seemed to me to the advice that I got from my grandfather. It really reminded me powerfully of him. And so that book kind of lived in my memory without me, I think, even seeing Haldemar per se, just those quotes, uh, really lived like a plant in my memory to where when I actually started studying Old Norse when I was, I think, 17, um, I decided I needed to go track it down. And uh, it's remained a real uh, special thing for me since then. Isn't that funny how you never know what's going to stick with you? Like, so I'm a teacher. I've taught high school and middle school English classes for years and years. And every now and then one of my old students will like drop like an example from the Bhagavad Gita or Gilgamesh that we'd read in class like years ago, like on my Facebook timeline. And it just blows my mind every time because you never know what's going to stick, you know? No, you absolutely cannot look at your students today and have any clue what they're going to take from it later. I know that for a fact. Exactly. Okay, so the Hovamal is something called, it's an Eddic poem. What does this mean? So we call the collection of poems preserved in the Codex Regius the Poetic Edda. And that name is given to it by analogy with another book, uh, which we call the Prose Edda. So to explain, there was an Icelandic chieftain named uh, Snorri Sturluson, who in the 1220s was evidently distressed by the the popularity of continental poetry and stories that were coming in and getting popular in Iceland as they were everywhere else, you know, the Arthurian kind of stuff and rhymed poetry. He wanted to preserve the traditional Norse style of alliterative poetry. So he wrote a book that's essentially a handbook for how to compose this poetry uh, that he called the Edda. And we don't know why it is called the Edda. There's a hundred different explanations for this name. I think the best explanation for what it means is the simplest. Edda is Old Norse for great-grandmother. And so because it is the lore that might be told to you by a great-grandmother, I think that's why the text is called that. But others disagree. Anyway, um, in explaining how to compose this poetry, since Norse poetry makes so many elusive references to Norse mythology, he had to explain to his his countrymen, who had now been Christian for more than 200 years, uh, what stories he remembered of the gods. Now, evidently, after the conversion, people went on telling stories about the gods for entertainment. Uh, these are not religious stories. It does nothing about how to worship Thor or how to make a sacrifice to Odin or how to pray to Freud. But they continue telling entertaining stories about them. So some of these were still on the lips of people. And he wrote down as near to a cohesive account of the gods and their stories as he could come up with. Of course, he was working with a lot of contradictory old poems, some of which are preserved independently in the Poetic Edda, and trying to make them consistent uh, results in kind of a mess sometimes because you have stuff that's passed down from different times and places and what I guess you could call denominations. Um, but so he, and he quotes many poems that are in the Poetic Edda. So, when the Codex Regis manuscript was discovered in the 1600s, it was named the Elder or Poetic Edda, by contrast with Snorri's book, which was then called the Prose or Younger Edda, because he is retelling in prose these older stories that are preserved in the Elder or Poetic Edda. Um, in fact, he quotes many poems that, that are preserved independently in the Poetic Edda uh, directly, and, of course, quotes and paraphrases other poems that are not preserved there. But evidently, both the prose and the poetic edda draw on the same old stock of poems. Excellent. So, as I would like to encourage any listener out there to actually get the book for themselves, I want to talk a little bit about the structure of what readers can expect if they've never read, seen, or heard of this manuscript before but perhaps they now want to read it after hearing us today. So um, can you talk a little bit about the five or six part structure of the text and what a new reader may expect if they're opening it for the first time? Sure. So if we keep going backwards in the history of Hobbamon, our written attestation of it 
is in the 1270 or so manuscript, the Codex Regius. That is copied from an earlier manuscript written down around 1200. Now, someone either around 1200 or someone even earlier had apparently combined several poems that were considered to be in the voice of the god Odin. And Odin is a god uh, fairly well known from popular culture, perhaps, although popular culture often gets things about him wrong. Uh, he is not a kindly grandfather figure as he is sometimes portrayed, for instance, in some of the Marvel universe. He is a uh, very dark, uh, somewhat selfish God, obsessed with knowledge, obsessed with gathering as much wisdom as he can. And wisdom, which is nearly the same word in Old Norse, it's vistomr, is a term that in Old Norse embraces many things that we wouldn't necessarily call wisdom today. So we say wisdom, and we mean something like practical, um, you know, counsel. Mm. But they say wisdom, they mean not just that, but also things like trivia or knowledge of magic um, or knowledge of how to write. Things like this are all, are all quote-unquote, wisdom or wisdom for the Norse. So the five, six, something like that constituent poems that make up all them all are all examples of Odin's wisdom as you would broadly define it in that way. And so as you go through the text, you encounter several distinct chunks um, that are distinct enough that they clearly weren't all composed together. In fact, um, a couple are noticeably older than others. But the first chunk, which is roughly stanzas 1 to 79, is almost all in one single meter, which is a good sign that it's cohesive. There's just one stanza, stanza 73, that doesn't fit. Um, and doesn't fit for another couple of reasons. And this section is called Gestafotr, which means the portion of guests. And so this is the practical advice for living that most people think of when they think of Alpamal. This is uh, advice for living in our uh, troubled, strife-torn world. It is advice of a largely kind of cynical cast. It's got a kind of belittling sense of humor. For instance, we're told that cows even know when it's time to stop eating, but People don't, and so fat people are stupid, <laughs> and it can, just be, it can just be belittling like that. Um, but beyond that, it has a, a remarkably real-world, pragmatic attitude toward wisdom and a, an attitude toward other people that is consistently cynical and distrusting and emphasizes uh, individual, individual achievement and survival. There is no mention of an afterlife. There is no mention of the supernatural. It is other than the reference to a couple names that we know Odin encounters elsewhere. You could think of it as the words of just an old man um, who's been pretty jaded by life uh, talking to uh, perhaps a younger person he's counseling. And that's the section that reminded me so much of my grandfather. Does the uh, does the book need to be read sequentially in these five or six parts, or can a reader jump around? You could jump around, I guess. Um, the the sections are so short. Um, I would say Gestafilter, this first part, you can definitely read on its own. Um, I, I, I guess I'll try to tackle this for each section, <laughs> because the the next section after Gestafilter is uh, Demi Odin's. Uh, usually in English, we call that Odin's love adventures. And that is the most fragmented part. Um, this actually, there's, it looks like there's two chunks of older poems that are in this, um, or they could be both chunks of one older poem. But then there's also just fragments of a ton of other poems that the meters is variable from stanza to stanza. Um, it's, a, it's a real mishmash. But what unites this section, which um, you could say is something like, it's definitely something like 84 to 110 with stanzas 80 to 83 being somewhere in the middle um, is a, an emphasis on love and the interactions of the sexes. And so we get a bunch of just isolated stanzas telling men not to trust women and women not to trust men. And then we have two stories told each across about a half a dozen stanzas, uh, one in which Odin successfully seduces a woman and one in which he fails to. And so it's just this 
this kind of hodgepodge of both advice about the interactions of the sexes and then Odin's successes and failures in interacting with women himself. That, I guess you could read as one section. I would actually say that the two individual stories about him, which again are only about a half dozen stanzas each, you, you could read on, on their own if you wanted to. And then what follows is the section called Lord Fawfness Mall. So there's that word mole again, which means words. And uh, Lord Fawfness refers to a character named Lord Fawfnir, uh, who we do not know from any other source, but who is Odin's uh, audience for this part of the poem. Most stanzas in this part are addressed to Lord Fawfnir. They begin with the same opening words, I advise you, Lord Fawfnir. And this gets back to kind of general advice, although it's not as hard-nosed and realistic as the first section, Gestathotr. This section includes more stuff about magic, for example, um, stuff about interacting with witches and uh, about magical cures. And then from about 138 to 145, we have the section we call Runatal, the account of the runes, in which Odin talks about sacrificing himself to himself on a tree, and then about how he learned the runes after doing so. And then 146 to 164, we have the section we call Yodatal, account of the spells, where Odin brags about the 18 magic spells that he knows, but does not teach them to us. He just tells us what they do. Each of these sections could be read in, on its own in isolation, but none of them, except for the two brief parts in Odin's love adventures about his adventures with women, are, are stories. Um, in fact, each stanza can largely be read on its own. Awesome. Yeah, and I read in the book that it's sometimes referred to as the Viking Code of Ethics, but that you feel this does little justice to the complexity of the work. Um, I'm curious if you can elaborate a little bit on how that Code of Ethics idea came to be and why it's limiting to the actual work. Well, there is a large Vikingophile subculture today, and I feel like it has largely developed in the last 20 years or so. And Part of what this Vikingophile culture seeks to do is find analogs for, uh, for the role of biblical books and texts. And I think that Havamal is, is seized on as kind of an analog of the Ten Commandments. Um, because pe people try to see the Poetic Edda as an analog of the Bible, which it truly isn't, because it's just a collection of stories that's not meant to be used. Religiously, right? It's passed down by Christians. Yeah. Um, but they look for analogs of, say, the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount and and, and try to kind of jam Havamal into that role, which really isn't appropriate. If, if Havamal has an analog in the Bible, it's Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. It's day-to-day -day advice. There's no commandments. There's no do this, do that. It's I advise you. This is wise. This is unwise. This is stupid. This is smart. <laughs> um. And so because people want it to serve that role, they, they often call it the Viking Code of Ethics. In fact, I think some um, public domain translations are repackaged and sold as that um, with that title, Viking Code of Ethics or something like that. But it really, it, it's just like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, the kind of advice that you're giving isn't advice you're giving because everybody takes it because it's characteristic of that culture. In a sense, it's advice you give because it's not characteristic of that culture. Mm. Right, so the Norse are, are heavy drinkers. Um, their most popular god, Thor, is famously even called Inmesti Drikumadr, which is like the greatest drinking man, the greatest competitor. <laughs> uh, this is some, this really, really one of his titles, in fact, one he uses it himself. Um, but Havamal constantly reminds us that sobriety is better than drunkenness, that you can have no worse burden with you than too much alcohol. Um, Odin frankly admits that he has been drunk. This is part of guest culture, <laughs> but that uh, we should be moderate in drinking. And so I think looking at it as a quote, Viking code of ethics is wrong. It's, it's practical advice. It's certainly conditioned by the Norse or Viking culture in which it originated, but it's not, um, it's not actually that wonderfully reflective of normal, I would think cultural conduct at that time. You know, the, the same way you would read, uh, the cynics uh, in, in Greek philosophy or the Stoics, they're not giving advice that is reflective of how every single person in Greece and Rome lives, right? If you understand it that way, you're going to end up writing something really vapid. <laughs> yeah. Ancient Greece or Rome. 
right? Um, instead, they are seeing the foibles and struggles of normal human life, uh, such as it is in any culture, and advising people who perhaps haven't thought about it as much or experienced as much in how to live in this world that is, after all, full of knives in every corner, um, a little bit better, a little bit wiser. You know, and I've been teaching this kind of stuff for a long time, and I'm always looking for the practical in a way that I can say, oh, this line in the Tao Te Ching is uh, reflective in the way you walk down the street every day when you make sort these sorts of decisions. And I love doing stuff like that. And I'm always looking for ways to connect these types of old texts to now with young people to kind of like hook them in, you know? Yeah. And um, you mentioned in your introduction that you've been teaching Hovamal for many years. And so as a teacher myself, I'm always interested in pedagogical methods for how to put a text in front of young people and get them to latch on to it in a certain way so that they remember something someday. And so I'm curious if you can give an overview of how you teach the book to first timers. Like if I was to come to you and say, oh, hey, Jackson, I know you've taught Hovamal for a long time. What do you suggest I do to hook these teenagers? Can you give me like a tour of your unit of study and sort of like advise me as a teacher on how to go about this? Well, I don't know if I necessarily have great ideas for how to hook teenagers. I think teenagers get hooked on what they want to, and, and it's more or less you're rolling the dice to see if it's what you're teaching them. Um, but it, it also depends on what I'm teaching because Hovamal ties into a lot of classes. Um, at CU over the past three years, uh, my position has actually contractually required me to teach a class of 160 or more every semester. Mm. And in a class like that, it's a struggle yeah, <laughs> um, just by nature. But in my smaller Norse mythology classes of 30 or so, um, I typically actually have them begin each day with a stanza from Hovamal. What I do is I have somebody uh, volunteer to read the stanza in Old Norse. I'll have it up on, on a screen or, or something like that. And this way they're practicing their Old Norse pronunciation because there's so many names in a Norse mythology class that we've got to kind of have a consistent idea of what they sound like or we're going to drive each other crazy. And then also they often find it a little bit funny when they get the translation. Um, because all of them all can be, like I said, kind of belittling and, uh, people can find some humor in that, but also it's a good way for them to appreciate how similar, uh, old Norse and English are, because I point out when they do these readings, um, words that are, that are close cognates. And as soon as, as soon as you start seeing a few, you start getting used to what's different and you can start kind of guessing what words mean. It's, it's kind of rewarding. Mm. So it serves for me, it's, it's, it's a frame that I use to make broader points about Norse language too. But when we actually are looking at the meat and potatoes of Paul Mall, I tend to deal with the first parts of it before I deal with the last parts of it, or sometimes vice versa. Uh, I have a unit that I teach in Norse mythology called Odin and Wisdom, in which I talk about uh, Odin as the, the ultimate expositor of wisdom in Norse myth. He is, after all, extremely ancient, and he has suffered a great deal. He's given up his eye. He sacrificed himself to himself and, in fact, died on a tree, uh, making him, of course, a, a very classical exponent of wisdom because he's someone who suffered and is old. That's where we look for wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Holdemol is not the only part of that. There are other poems attributed to Odin. Uh, for instance, there's the poem Vathu with this mole, where he has a basically trivia contest with a, uh, an enemy. There's also the poem Grimnismol, where he... Uh, goes into something of a trance and tells a human he's talking to about all the different realms of the gods. Um, all of this is reflective of, of, broadly speaking, wisdom. And so are, of course, uh, the magic spells at the end of the book. But I also have a section, uh, a unit, uh, typically about a week, of a Norse mythology class that I call Odin and Death, where I emphasize this god's incredibly strong connection to the dead. He is himself dead or undead or resurrected. It's, it's, it's hard to know how to read the story exactly, but again, he has died in sacrifice to himself. Uh, and he frequently wakes up the dead and asks questions of them because the dead are supposed to have certain uh, wisdom, which of course connects to him as an exponent of wisdom. He receives human sacrifice and uh, on occasions in the mythical sagas advises human sacrifice. Uh, so what I tend to do is rather than teaching Hovamal per se, stanza 1 through 164, 
is in discussing the character of Odin, different aspects of it uh, come up. And so actually part of what's in the Wanderer's Hall is some related texts at the end of the book that explore related aspects of Odin as a god of wisdom and death. So we have, for instance, which is a song sung by his Valkyries, the women that he sends to fetch dead men from the battlefield because Odin is gathering up all the dead men that he can to fight with him at Ragnarok when the gods and their enemies will kill one another. And there's also the poems Eriksmal Hokonormal, which were composed about Norwegian kings when they died and joined Odin in Valhall, Valhalla, his hall where he, he gathers his dead warriors. And there's also a uh, scene from a saga called Gatvek Saga where Odin commands uh, a man that he favors to sacrifice his king to him, and the man is sacrificed in the exact same way that Odin sacrifices himself to himself in Hothamal. So Hothamal is well connected to the larger lore about Odin, and that is mostly how I teach it in a myth class. That's awesome. I like the idea of popping in and out of the text sporadically throughout like an entire semester so that it's constantly within the conversation and not like a standalone unit. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Because the more it comes up, the more you actually are going to know it, right? If you learn it for one quiz, you're not going to remember it. But if it's a poem that saturates the whole class, um, that's something you're more likely to, to recall, I think. I'm always kind of keeping in mind what I call the, the 10 years from now principle, right? What, what are you going to remember 10 years from now? And I try to kind of arrange the class around nine or 10 basic things I hope people remember. Awesome. Well, speaking of 10 years, that's actually a really awesome segue because I know you did a translation in 2010 and then this new version in 2019, so almost a decade apart. And you mentioned the book that you refined the translation between your first translation and your second translation. What were some of the biggest changes that you made um, based on your experience of teaching the book and having nine more years of study? Like, how did you refine this? Well, that comes down a little bit to my history with um, my publisher, Hackett, and, and how these books came to be in the first place. In 2010, I began translating Hall of Mall for myself. I wanted to have, uh, because I liked the text so much and because I was a PhD student in Old Norse, and I needed to basically know at least some of this literature by heart. I wanted to kind of create the ultimate Havamal for me, right? So I, I went to the Codex Regius, adapted the text directly from there into Old Norse, and then I started producing an English translation. Um, by the time I was teaching at UCLA, which was 2011 to 2014, uh, the first semester that I taught Norse Smith, I think my first semester there, um, I signed a recent translation of the Poetic Edda that I was able to find. But there's a problem uh, translators have where if it's old, it needs to sound old. Mm. And classic suffers from this a little bit too, maybe not as bad as it used to, but medieval studies suffers from this horribly, where because it is in Old English or Old Norse, it is translated today into faux Shakespearean English, right? Thou art. Yeah likes and fair maids and <laughs> this is so distracting to the modern reader right i'm trying to convey the sense of humor of this text i'm trying to convey the really visceral violence of some of these texts and students are struggling with their english dictionaries open to read the translation and i thought you know it's not a translation if you need a dictionary so i made my translation of Hobbamal available to them and then i went i said you know what i'm, I'm just going to do some of the really important poems in the Poetic Edda besides Hulkamal, and I did a few more. And then it occurred to me, you know, maybe there's a market for this out there. Maybe since Norse Myth is so popular, and I think it's even more popular now than it was then, maybe people would have better information about it if instead of when they pick up the Poetic Edda saying, oh my gosh, I can't read this, this old-fashioned stuff, this looks like the KJV, if instead they could pick it up, approach it in the same way that say an old Norse speaker could approach it. It's just natural, normal looking language and really appreciate these stories and, and the humor that's in them. So I had recently written a favorable review of Hackett's new translation of Beowulf by Dick Ringler. And I wrote back to, to uh, Brian Rack at Hackett and I said, uh, Hey, would you also be interested maybe in starting 
into Old Norse, right? They're a classics publisher. They've begun their medieval series of Beowulf. And they said, sure, uh, what, do you, what, what do you propose? I told them about the Poetiquetta. Um, and they said, well, okay, we can give you a couple of years to write this. And I said, oh, I've already done a lot of it. Let me just send you what I've got. And that was what got me started. Uh, that's, that's what my 2015 publication of the Poetiquetta with Hackett is from. And so that book contains uh, the translations of, of all the Eddic poems minus one that's very long, very late, and very redundant. And so the translation of all of them all there is based uh, on the work I've been doing since 2010 with my original translation. Excellent. Well, and Hackett does such amazing work too. Like my favorite version of the Tao Te Ching was actually put out by Hackett as well. So every time I come across one of their classics works, I feel like I'm reading like my, my favorite thing that I've ever read in that field, which is really a cool feeling. Like I feel like they do great work. Oh, absolutely. Hackett is a really underappreciated publisher. Uh, of course, I knew them from from being a classics major, right? Um, and I was excited that they were were moving into medieval stuff anyway. Uh, so it's been neat to be be such a part of their move into publishing medieval works as well. Uh, now they've also got the Nibelungen lead, so they're not just doing Old Norse. Um, it's it's really it's really great to see. And I think Hackett really cares about not just producing a book that's a good textbook for use in a classroom. Yeah also a text that will connect with the general interested reader outside. And, and you can see it sometimes in, in the cool cover choices, like the new Iliad edition that has the D-Day photo on it. Yes. It, it really connects you with what this story is to someone in another, another culture, right? What the kind of analog is, um, which is also something I've tried to do not to wander too far afield with something like the cowboy Hall which is part of the wanderers Hall where I translate Hall into the voice of my grandfather. Um, I think Hackett is, is a really uniquely suited publisher for these works of ancient wisdom and literature and, and, and how to reach modern readers with them. Yeah, and the Cowboy Havamal is in the back of this book, and it's absolutely wonderful. So, like, here's, you know, stanza one. Use your eyes and never walk blind. There ain't no telling where there's someone waiting to put one over on you. I mean, that is just wonderful because it is just a way that, you know, I'm from Missouri and like, so I read that and it just absolutely crystal clear makes sense to me when I'm reading it through. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's my favorite thing I've ever done probably, or the most me thing I've ever done. Um, cause after all, it was the fact that this wisdom reminded me so much of my grandfather that made me really fall for the sex and being able to actually go and make it sound like him um, it's, it's something that's connected with a lot of readers and I'm very happy for that. That's beautiful. So I want to finish our time today by having you pick maybe a couple of stanzas that you feel particularly strongly about. And then I want you to, uh, read them in the old Norse and then in the English, um, so that we can kind of hear what it sounds like in the original hear your translation, and then I may ask you a little follow-up, such as, like, why did you pick those stanzas or something like that? Does that sound good? Yep. So here's my idea. What about stanzas 69 to 77, which are late in the part called Gestafotr? And I like them because they all strongly emphasize um, mortality and the, uh, the, the way that we need to live in this time which I think is so different from uh, sometimes what people want Havamal to be, right? A, a more religious text. It's very much about this world. Absolutely. That sounds great. I'm on the page. All right. So let me do this in Old Norse. Then I'll do it in my more conventional English translation. And then how about I read it from the cowboy Havamal as well? Perfect. Love it. Let's do it. All right. Erat madar als vesal thot han se illa hel sumer Erar sonum sal, summer a frandu, summer a fe urnu, summer a vercum bell. Petra erlibdum, en se ulibdum, oi getter quicker coo. El so ek up brenna, eusgum mani hure, en uti vardeuder hurdurum. Hotter reader rossi, jord recker handarvanner. Deuver vegger octuger, blinder er betri, en brender se, 
nyter man genås. Sonder er bättre, tot se sid av allin, efter gengen gumma. Sjaldan bautar stenar, standa brautu när, nema resi nidrat nid. Tveru ens herjar, tunga er hovets bani, er mer i heden huerden, handar vän. Not verder fegen, so er nesti truir, skammaru skeps roar. Hver er haustgrima, fjoldum bidrir of him dogum, en mera o monadi. Veta hin er vätki veit, margar verder av odrum api. Mader er audigar, annar o audigar, skyldtan vitka vår. Dyr fe, dyja frender, dyr sjolvrit samma, en orstir, Dyr aldregi, hvemmer ser godan getter. Dyr fe, dyja frender, dyr sjolvrit samma. Ek veit ein, at aldri dyr, domr um dadan hver. Now in English, those nine stanzas are No one is totally wretched, even if his health is bad. Some find happiness in their children, some in their kin, some in their money, some in work well done. Better to be alive, no matter what, than dead. Only the living enjoy anything. I saw a fire burning for a rich man, and he lay dead outside the door. A limping man can ride a horse, a handless man can herd, a deaf man can fight and win. It's better even to be blind than fuel for the funeral pyre. What can a dead man do? Better to have a son than not, even if he's born late in life, even if he's born after you die. You'll rarely see memorials or graves standing near the road that were raised for men without sons. Two men will defeat one. Your tongue can endanger your head. And every hand hidden by a cloak, I expect to see a weapon. The seaman is glad at evening, looking forward to his dinner, and just a short distance to sail home. But an autumn night is untrustworthy. Many things can get worse in only five days, and even worse, even more in a month. The ignorant man does not know how little he knows. You become foolish by listening to fools. One man is rich, another man is poor, neither has the other to blame. Cows die, family die, you will die the same way. But a good reputation never dies for the one who earns it well. Cows die, family die, you will die the same way. I know only one thing that never dies, the reputation of the one who's died. Excellent. I'll do the cowboy part. Yeah, I'm going to that right now. Is it the same stanza numbers? Yeah. All right, got it. All right. You can never lose everything, even if your health looks to give out any minute. You might still have your kids, your family, your money, or something else. Or better, a job well done. Better to be alive no matter what than dead, only to live and enjoy anything. I've seen a rich man's corpse. It wasn't different than a poor man's. Break your leg, you can ride a horse still. Lost a hand, not your voice too, I reckon. Can't hear, but you can still fight. There ain't a damn way any shot at life is worse than empty death. It's good to have a son or someone you can call that. There ain't too many remembered, except those as left family behind. If two fight again one, two will probably win. And again, son, watch your damn tongue. And never trust that what folks keep hidden from you is for your own good. The weather can change a lot in five days. It can change even more in a month. And you're a fool if you think you can predict it. Never trust anything. It's not in your own power. I've said you should listen, but don't listen to goddamn idiots. And remember, you might be poor, someone else might be rich, and neither of you has the other to blame. Cows die, friends and family die, you will die just the same way. But if you have a good reputation, that might survive you. Cows die, friends and family die, you will die just the same way. The only thing that won't die is what folks say about you when you're dead. I loved it. Thank you so much for doing those. Those are so cool. Thank you. So um, where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? Well, the easiest place to find me is on YouTube. I've actually begun um, bringing all of this to YouTube because, of course, Nowadays, when people want information, they're likely to Google it, and I want to 
be there when they Google this so that they can get information from someone who knows what he's talking about and not someone with an agenda. Um, so if you just find me on YouTube, it's Jackson Crawford, just my name. I'm probably the Jackson Crawford that you'll find. Um, I'm probably the only one with a, a cowboy hat on anyway. Yeah. And uh, then I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Norse by Southwest. That's Norse by SW. Awesome. And, uh, my books are widely available everywhere. Well, I will put all the links to everything you just mentioned in the show notes for any listeners. All you got to do is go into the notes in your podcast app and click those, and it'll take you right to everything just mentioned. Uh, well, Dr. Jackson Crawford, this has been a real pleasure. As I mentioned to you off air earlier, I've never featured anything like this on the show before, so I am super grateful to you for your time, your attention to detail, your fantastic stories, and your very accessible work that I think that everybody should check out. Thank you so much. I'm honored, Greg. Thank you for your time. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybick. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.